2009, November 17th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 36, Exoplanets, Planets Around Other Stars. So we've established what it is we're looking for. We're looking for pl rocky planets in the habitable zones of low-mass stars. Yesterday we talked about the solar neighborhood. and We saw well, where is it we're going to go looking for these planets. Where are the low-mass main-sequence stars around us, out to, say, 10 or 15 or maybe 100 light years around us. Well, today I want to turn to some actual results rather than all that buildup and talk about what we actually know today about exoplanets, the planets that exist around other stars. It used to be this was a topic that I would say, you know, one of these days we're going to find planets around other stars. In the last uh, 10, 15 years, the subject has absolutely exploded. Um, and it actually makes a class like this possible in many ways. So today what we're going to be talking about is the searches for planets around other stars, the so-called exoplanets. We're going to concentrate today just on the search methods and the basic outcomes. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the properties of these exoplanets and see what we can learn about these, these systems. Turns out they're very, very surprising. I'll just give that sort of a teaser for what's coming up. So what we're going to be concerning ourselves with today is how do we find them? What are the ways we can do this? The most obvious way is just look. Try to go for direct detection. This is obviously extremely challenging. Stars are very bright. Planets shine only, for the most part, by reflected light. And they're going to be very, very hard to see against the glare of the star. But it's just now becoming possible. Last two years ago, when I gave this essentially analogous lecture in Astronomy 161, I said, you know, direct detection just isn't getting anywhere. Last year, four planets found by direct detection methods. Three of them in one system. Absolutely amazing. So it's real big, real big change in this area. The primary way we've searched is not direct. That's really challenging, but to use so-called indirect methods. Methods that look for the effects of the planet upon its parent star. We can't see the planet directly because it's just lost in the glare or it's too close or maybe it's just too faint. We don't, it could be any of a variety of things. So how are we going to be able to tell something's there if we can't see it directly? And there's a couple ways we can do this. One of these is to use the so-called radio velocity or RV method. This has been extremely successful. In fact, it accounts for most of the planets we've detected around other stars. I did a quick tally this morning. It's something over 77, 78% of all planets have been detected by the RV method. So it's kind of hard to do the tech because there's so many different crisscrossing methods. The other way we can look at it is not for the planet's orbital motion, which is what the radial velocity method uses. It basically uses the orbital motion of the star and reflects to the motion of the planet. We can also use two other techniques, one of which is called planetary transits, where every now and then things line up just right, and the planet gets between us and its parent star, and the parent star's light dips a little bit. We can actually see that dip, and again, it's a techno technological thing as much as anything else. And there's now about five dozen planets have been discovered this way. This number could jump into thousands over the next decade using a variety of techniques. Gravitational microlensing is a somewhat more oddball technique in which we actually use the gravity of the planet to cause a little change in the light of a background star that gets right between us and that. It's hard to describe with words. I've got to show pictures. But in fact, it is a very successful method for finding... Um, Unseen planets. In fact, Ohio State University, in, if you will, one of our professors, Andy Gould, invented this method, and we've been the leaders in applying it. And so we'll look at a couple of the results from that today. And then the bottom line, and this is one of these things where just know the order of magnitude of this number, because for all I know, a press release will come out tomorrow and change it again. Um, as of the beginning of this month, 
we know of 405 planets around 343 stars. For most of human history, we've known about five planets, six if you count the Earth, around the one star of the Sun. We now have got far more planetary systems than we've ever known at any time in human history. To put this in some perspective, again, when I last gave this particular lecture, in or the version of this lecture, in Astronomy 161 was two years ago in November of 2007. That number was only 200. We have doubled the number of planets in two years. So we really are living in this amazing time where our knowledge about extrasolar planets is just exploding. So let's look at how we go about doing this. How do we find planets around other stars? It's a real challenge. Planets are small, they're tiny, they only shine by reflected light, invisible light. You can see planets like Jupiter and Saturn shine by their own light in infrared radiation. But even that infrared radiation is feeble compared to the total power output of their parent star. So it's very, very challenging to go about doing this. Stars, as we saw yesterday and the day before, are very, very far away. The mean distance between stars and the local solar neighborhood are six light years. And in fact, to get out to the nearest sun-like stars, we have to go out to volumes of distances of like 10 or 20 or 100 light years away. The further something gets away, the smaller it is appearing on the sky angularly. And it's very challenging to see little faint things next to really bright things really close together. So we're going to take a couple of different approaches today. Today is all about methods. The most obvious way to look for planets, and one of the most challenging, is to take a picture. To look for a picture of, of the star and look for little planets circling it. That's the, that's the ultimate way we would like to do it. As we'll see, that's pretty tough. So we've had to fall back on indirect methods. We've had to use properties of the planet-star system that we can use to deduce the properties of the underlying planet or even find it, find it there itself. We can use gravitational methods that look at the orbital motions of the two bodies around each other, the so-called wobbling of the star because of the planet's gravity. I can't see the planet itself. I can't measure the planet's motion. But I can see the star moving in reflex. I can also occasionally, as I mentioned, see a planet pass between us and the star. The planet's not big enough to totally eclipse the star, but it might drop its light 1%, a tenth of a percent, a hundredth of a percent. And I can watch that little systematic periodic dip in the light as it transits or crosses the disk of its parent star. The other thing I can do is I can use gravitational microlensing of a background star by a planet in the foreground. Gravity, as Einstein taught us, acts, can act like a lens. Gravity can bend light around massive objects. If two stars line up, the light from the background star will bend around the foreground star, just like holding a lens out at arm's length. It will cause a little bit of the light that would normally miss your head to bend around into your eye and slightly magnify the background just a little teeny tiny bit. If that lens is imperfect, there's a second mass there. I distort the lens a bit, and I can see that distortion pattern in the background light, and I can tell, you know, that wasn't a simple one-mass lens. That was a two-mass or three-mass lens and tell the presence of a planet there. This one sounds really way out, but it works. It really does work. It's really quite exciting. So let's see how these all work. Directed planet detection is sort of, as I said before, is kind of the holy grail. It's the thing we'd really like to do because it's the, it's the most visually arresting. Look, there's a planet. Now, I'm going to have to cut the lights here because this is really kind of hard to see with the lights up. Ah, not that light. Oh, I'm so happy when they renovate this room. Of course, we're going to be gone. This is a bright star called Fomalhaut. It's a, it's a bright 
Oh gosh, I'm going to get this wrong now. It's, it's an A-type star. It's a relatively hotter star than the sun. It's an F, I'm sorry, I think it's an F-star. It's up in the constellation of Pisces Austrinus, the southern fish. It's the brightest star, so it's actually a naked eye star. It's one of the handful of naked eye stars with a known planet. We've used a special mask here. In this case, it's a picture taken with the Hubble Space Telescope advanced camera that puts a, a mask over the star to sort of, it's like holding up my hand here to block out the projector so I can look to see stuff. If I'm standing here with the projector shining in my face, I, I really can't see anything. But I can sort of tell when I cover my hand that there's some people in the back row who are, for example, using their cell phones to see a little light. So I block out the light of the star, then I start picking up this faint disk of dusty debris around Fomalhaut. This has been known before. There's a little spot right here in the disk. And when it was watched between 2004 and 2006, the spot moved. Now, let me get the lights back on so we can all see. This is just one of those very dark pictures. So this little planet's way out here. It's about 115 astronomical units out here. This is a really cool detection. You'll notice this planetary debris disk here, the sort of light-colored stuff out here, is kind of like a big, fat, thick ring. Dynamically, if you just simply let a cloud or a ring of dust all by itself, it would slowly spread itself out. It wouldn't have any sharp edges to it. So the only way you can get a sharp edge to something like that is you kind of gravitationally sculpt it. The gravity of a planet or something else can actually herd the particles back into line and keep that sharp edge sharp for millions and millions of years. Otherwise, it would just fade out. Years and years ago, a postdoctoral fellow at, at, at Ohio State named Alice Quillen was one of the people, one of the smartest women I've ever met in my life, one of the smartest people generally I've ever met in my life, saw this picture and said, you know, there has to be a planet somewhere out here to sculpt in there. And she predicted where it would be. And she predicted, oh gosh, five, six years ago, 115 astronomical units. Outstanding. Shows you how deterministic this stuff is. If you really think about it, you can really tell what's going on here. So here's a case of a planet. It's really, really faint. It's probably a gas giant. It's probably a large Jupiter-like planet. But it's way the heck out. It's way, way far away from its parent star. So we've detected it. We can tell it's a planet. Of course, they're going to continue to follow it. ACS is back online after the last Hubble servicing mission. I'm certain there's going to be 2009 and 2010 and points, and they're going to follow this one as long as Hubble can and try to sketch out the details of its orbit and learn more about it. But right now, that's all I can say is, ooh, look, there's a planet. There's a question in the back there, I believe. Okay, I did answer the question. Good. Now, it turns out that just shortly after the Fomalhaut announcement, um, in September of 2008, this is all just last year, um, a group working, uh, it's a combination of people from uh, California and Canada using ground-based telescopes actually detected a uh, three star, three planets, around a star called HR 8799. A lot of stars have kind of just sort of catalog names. Now, this god-awful jumble of color that you see in here is, in fact, uh, an artifact of the imaging method they were using. They were using a, a new technique called adaptive optics, and they're working out in the infrared to do this. And what you can see is it's a little hard to see this one over here, but the cross marks are pictures taken in July of 2008 and then in 2004, and then in 2008 their techniques got good enough that they can move in closer to the glare of the star. What adaptive optics does is it uses um, basically flexible optics and a laser to shine up through the Earth's atmosphere and detwinkle the stars. If you've ever gone, gone into a swimming pool and lie down at the bottom of a swimming pool and look up, everything is distorted and wavy because you're looking through all the turbulent crap between you and, and whatever it is you're trying to look at. 
we're sitting at the bottom of 50 kilometers of turbulent crap we rather nicely call the atmosphere. The atmosphere is what makes the stars twinkle. But if you track on a star with a very fast uh, sensor and even fire lasers up there to put an artificial spot whose brightness and position you know and track the motions, you can actually push and pull little mirrors to kind of catch all the light. It's kind of like someone trying to catch um, acorns falling out of a tree by moving around and catching all the acorns. If they just stood there, the acorns would fall on their head. But if you could move around and catch the acorns, you can gather everything up in your hand. That's what adaptive optics does. It's basically, it's a technology that came out of military technology so we can look at the other guy's spy satellites. Cold War is over, got to do something with it. The astronomer said, oh, this is awesome stuff. We can actually make our ground-based telescopes begin to approach the quality of the Hubble Space Telescope, but without spending billions of dollars to loft the silly thing into orbit. And this is the big payoff. This is the thing everyone was promising for years with adaptive optics is you could detwinkle the stars, deglare the stars, and actually begin to see faint planets nearby. And sure enough, around HR 8799, we've detected three planets and are beginning the process of mapping out their orbits. It's a slow process. These things are fairly far away. The scale bar here is 20 astronomical units. So these guys are out at you know, 20, 30, 40 astronomical units. These are probably gas giant stars, and they're probably in the outer solar system of... You know, I just realized I forgot to look up what kind of star HR 8799 is or how far away it is. So I could probably figure it out by looking here. It's one arc second is 20, 30 astronomical units. Must be about 30 parsecs away. Yeah, something like that. So that's direct detection, and that's it. That's it, four planets. So we're going to have to fill in the rest of those 400 some other way. And the way we do it is by using indirect methods. Stars and planets orbit around each other in their mutual gravity. Newton taught us that stars orbit, planets orbit around stars in such a way that the planet and star orbit not around the center of the star, but around their mutual center of mass. It's like a little balance point with a lever arm going between the star and the planet. And I've shown a little cartoon here of a fairly massive planet very close to its parent star, but because the planet has a finite mass, as does the star, they're going to be on either side of this common center of mass, drawn as a little white cross circle there. Not surprisingly, how far away you are from the center of mass is in direct proportion to the ratio of your masses. If the planet is one-half the mass of the star, they will be in the proportion of two to one, away from each other. The lighter object is at the end of the lever arm, the heavier object is closer. Just think about a balance beam where you've got a big weight and a small weight on it, you're going to put the balance point closer to the big object. The problem, of course, is stars are really big, planets are really small in terms of mass, and so that balance point is actually inside the star for the most part. And so if you could look down on the star-planet system from above, what you would see is the planet and star kind of wobbling of to and fro around this apparently fixed point in space, that fixed point being the center of mass. Now, Notice the speed here. They both take exactly the same time to go around their respective circles. But the circle of the orbit of the star is much smaller than the circle of the orbit of the planet. Not surprisingly, the planet is moving faster. It's got to cover a much bigger circumference in the same time as the star covers a smaller circumference. The ratio of their speeds is just exactly the ratio of their masses because they've got to be doing this little dance around their center of mass. So if you looked at the system from afar, 
the planet would be completely lost in the glare of the star. And what I would see is a little star sort of going, woof, 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 was kind of doing a little wobble and dance all by itself. I say, you know, stars just don't wobble by themselves in space just for the fun of it. They're moving in response to an unseen mass. I can measure the amount of the wobble and estimate the mass of the object, the planet, that's causing it to wobble back and forth. So this is an indirect method. In this cartoon, I can see the planet, but imagine that I couldn't from very far away. All I could see was the star wobbling to and fro, appearing to wobble about its center of mass. Now, what if we looked at our own solar system? Let's just try this out on ourselves. Imagine I could go to another star about 18, 20 light years away, look down on the plane of the solar system. Right? That's going to be much more of an obvious effect when you're looking down on the plane. And suppose I could do this between 1990 and about 2020. So I can do this for about a 30-year period. Why so long? Well, remember that Jupiter is out at five astronomical units. It takes about 11 and a half years to go around the sun. Saturn takes about 30 years to go around the sun. So as a consequence, what I would see is the wobble, not that simple back and forth motion, but I now have two opposing tugs. The center of mass is now not the center of mass of sun and Jupiter, but it's Sun plus Jupiter plus Saturn. And so I get this really sort of wicked spirally dance here as the Sun moves to and fro around the common center of mass of the entire solar system. But in mass terms, the entire solar system is basically Jupiter, Saturn, and all the other junk. So you can only pick up really big planets this way. And even if you went out 20 light years, 18 light years, which is barely outside of, it's barely getting outside of our solar neighborhood, you're talking about an angle of one one thousandth of an arc second. Okay, one one thousandth of an arc second is well down below the limits of our current measurement technologies for finding the position of something relative to background stars. It's really going to be challenging to see the star doing this little gravitational dance back and forth by using a background grid of stars to represent far enough away we can't see the move and it's kind of the foreground thing doing this little dance back and forth. There are some space missions currently in the planning stages, SIM, the Space Interferometer Mission, and Gaia, a European mission, that will actually get down not only to thousandths of an arc second precision, but actually get down to millionths of an arc second precision. And they'll actually be able to crack through and look at nearby stars for the so-called astrometric wobble. Astrometric meaning measured with respect to the background stars. So astrometric wobble should be a fairly relatively straightforward way to find planets by their gravitational influence on their host star. It's just not technologically there yet. It's way wicked challenging. And so we haven't accomplished it yet, but a number of missions are being aimed at pushing the precision and the state of the art to do that. Now, we can use the same trick, the same Doppler wobble trick the same orbital wobble trick. Instead of looking down on the system, imagine I was looking at the system from the side. I'm over here on the left, observing the star and its planet system with my telescope. When the planet is in a position here where the planet's moving away from us, the star, the parent star, is going to be moving towards us. Remember, they rotate around their common center of mass, the little circled cross there. As the star moves towards me, its spectral absorption lines are going to get shifted blueward in wavelength, something called the Doppler shift, the Doppler effect. Now, if I wait half an orbit later, 
the planets come all the way around this way, the star has gone up the other half of its orbit, now the planet's coming towards me and the star is moving away from me. When the star moves away from me, the Doppler shift moves to the red part of the spectrum. And so as I watch this star, night after night, day after day, year after year, I'll see its spectral lines kind of wobble back and forth, first to the red, then to the blue. This Doppler effect is the same basic principle that allows handheld Doppler radar to work for cops trying to figure out if you're speeding, or works, for example, Doppler radar for weather. You can measure the speed of something moving towards or away from you by looking at the Doppler shift in frequencies. Here, we're using the light from the star shifted back and forth, rather than in the case of radar, where I send out a pulse of radio radiation or microwaves, and then watch the pulse bounce off the thing that's moving. So I get this so-called Doppler wobble, or more precisely, I call it radial velocity, because I only can see the component of motion that's along my line of sight between me and the star, and that's the so-called radial component, and hence the name radial velocities which for the purposes of this talk and the technique we refer to as the RV method. So the RV method measures the orbital speed. It can't see the, the star wobbling back and forth. That's too slow. It's small. It's all buried in kind of the glare and all the turbulence of the atmosphere. But if I take all that light in my telescope, pass it into a spectrograph, I can see the little tiny Doppler shift back and forth as the star orbits around its unseen planet. I can't see the planet. I can't see the planet spectrum but I can see the star doing its little da wobble dance back and forth, although I'll see the component of motion in this direction. It turns out I can measure velocities using the Doppler effect to unbelievably high precision. How high do we need? Let's take a look at some numbers. The greater the mass of the, the, greater the star is the heavier of the two companions. It's got the greater mass. So its orbital speed is going to be really small. So it's going to be challenging to measure. The planet's whipping around really fast, but the planet's going to move in a slow reflex in proportion to the ratio of the planet to the star mass. Let's take an example from our own solar system, the Sun and Jupiter. Jupiter's five astronomical units out. It turns out its orbital speed is about 13 kilometers a second. 13 kilometers a second is gravy. It's easy to measure 13 kilometers a second by Doppler shift. The problem is I can't see Jupiter if I'm far away, but I can see the Sun. The ratio of the mass of Jupiter to the mass of the Sun is about a factor of a thousand. Jupiter is one one thousandth the mass of the Sun. So the speed of the Sun in reflex is one one thousandth of 13 kilometers, which is 13 meters per second. That's only 30 miles an hour. Okay, I can actually manage 30 miles an hour. I can manage 13 meters a second, right? Police do that all the time. You know, they clock you with their little Doppler radar. It's tricky to do this in an astronomical context, but we can do 13 meters, meters per second. So that's what we get for Jupiter. Well, of course, Jupiter is kind of interesting, but we'd really like to find an Earth. The Earth <coughs> is even smaller by comparison to the mass of the Sun. The Earth is whipping around the Sun at 30 kilometers a second. It's really, really cooking along there. But we can't see the Earth to measure its Doppler speed. I can only see the Sun's Doppler reflex, and that's 10 centimeters per second. That's 0.22 miles per hour. 10 centimeters is, okay, forgive my English units, 4 inches per second. There are babies that crawl faster than that. And we have to detect that in a star tens of light years away. That's extremely challenging. 
even meters per second is pretty challenging. We, we, we can do it, but it, it hurts, right? You really have to work on it. Turns out people have been working on it, and the current state of the art is down to under a meter per second. So we're doing really good, but we're not yet down to the centimeters per second scale, but we're sneaking up on it day after day after day. We're getting there. And it turns out to be some tricks you can use to kind of finesse it a bit, but it's hard. People tried this for years. They thought they were going to go after Jupiter's. They said, well, we're going to look at something which takes a period of, of 11, 12 years to go around the sun. These are long-term projects, long-term investments, decade-long investments. And in 1995, the game changed completely from the expectations. If you'd asked me when I was in grad school, and we thought about it, it was always a homework problem, design an experiment to see the Doppler velocity shift of Jupiter from another star. How would you go about crafting such an experiment? Yeah, take a spectrum a year, a couple times a year of every star in the sky and look for this thing over a course of about one period is about 10, 12 years. You want two periods to confirm, so you're going to do this project for 20 years. I'd still be doing it if we did it that way. And people do. In 1995, Michel Maillard and Didier Coyoz from the Geneva Observatory undertook a much more ambitious campaign because they were open to the possibility that maybe there were large planets much closer to the stars than we were expecting by looking at our own solar system. And in 1995, they made the stunning announcement that the star 51 Pegasi, it's a sun-like star about 40 light years away in the constellation of Pegasus, showed a planet of approximately one-half Jupiter mass with an orbital speed of 56 meters per second on the star. Remember, the sun to Jupiter was only 13 meters a second. 13 meters a second? 30 meters a second. 13 meters per second. So if you say, well, what could make a star this mass of the sun whip around at 56 meters per second? You're in an orbit that completes one orbit around its star every four and a quarter days. Jupiter takes 11 years. So this was totally unexpected. If you do the math, that's a half Jupiter mass planet, 0.05 astronomical units from its parent star. That's only a few stellar radii out. So what they discovered was a so-called hot Jupiter. They found a Jupiter-mass planet extremely close to its star, inside the orbit of Mercury. People saw this and went, that's just weird. That was not what we were expecting. Well, maybe it's just weird. Maybe it is just, they just happened to find the first real oddball. Uh, no, actually, they turn out to be phenomenally common. To date, most of the exoplanets we have discovered, most of that 400 exoplanets known as of the beginning of this month, have been discovered by this radial velocity measurement. Not surprisingly, the bigger the mass of the planet is and the closer it is to its parent star, if you will, the smaller the mass ratio difference between the parent and the planet, the much more sensitive you are to finding that planet using radial velocities. You also need time. The further it out, further out the planet is, the slower the motion, and the longer it takes you to be able to trace out enough of the orbital motion, enough of the blue shift, and then red shift, and back to blue shift, before you're confident you actually found something, that you actually got a planet, and not some kind of weird binary star or something else. So the longer you run the experiment, and we've been running the experiment now since the late 1980s, up now for maybe 20, it's probably a good 20 years of data has begun. The first actual planet detection was way back in 1989, but there was no way to confirm it. So it's just one little lonely point up here on the plot. 1995, 51 Pegasi, within a year, 
the uh, groups at the Lick Observatory in California, the groups at the Geneva Observatory, and a variety of other groups have begun to announce more and more planet discoveries. Now, surprisingly, you find the highest mass things first, especially those that are close to their planets. Higher mass means bigger mass ratio. Bigger mass ratio means bigger reflex motion of the star. So that's remained pretty constant. What's been pushed down, what makes this diagonal curve here, is you have time to see the slower moving further out planets. And second is steady increase in our technological ability to measure smaller and smaller speeds. So it's a combo between technology and, t and just the orbital time scales that have allowed us to drop the masses down to where we're now below a Jupiter mass routinely. We're getting down into Neptune masses and Uranus masses. We're getting into things that we refer to as super-Earths, things that are five, ten times the mass of the Earth. We're sneaking up. We're down to five Earth masses down here now. The star called Gliese 581e. Barely detected. That's part of a four-planet four system. Well, here's the line for an Earth mass, and there's 2010. We're getting there. We're getting real, real close. We haven't found the Earth yet, but I'm willing to bet, maybe real money, I'm not sure yet, not the house or the car, that we're going to find an Earth mass planet around a star sometime in the next year or two. That's how, that's how close this technique. If you'd asked me five years ago if we'd done this, I said, now we're going to bottom out here. Technology has moved way ahead. Definitely guessed that one wrong. So we're coming close. We're getting to the point where we can almost find Earth masses, but we're not there yet. The big change is still coming. So that's the RV method. Radial velocity has discovered about 77, 78% of all planets now. No, no, no. Another planet detection method is to wait for the planet to, if those very rare planets whose orbital planes are nearly aligned with our line of sight. Most planets, on average, should be at some tilt, and it should just be a random tilt. There's no reason for it to be aligned in any particular way. But every now and then, some small subset of those planets is perfectly aligned or very close to alignment with the line of sight between the Earth and the star. When that happens, if the planet passes between us and the star, the bulk of its mass blocks a little bit of the light. And so the average light of the star suddenly dips a little bit, as it passes into the front of the star, cruises across, and then goes out the other side as it moves across. We call this a transit, a crossing of the star. The first one was discovered by looking at a radial velocity pl a discovered planet, and people figured, you know, if we're right about the estimate of this thing, maybe it is actually pretty close to our line of sight, let's start watching it. And actually, a, uh, an amateur astronomer in Tennessee actually made the first detection of the light dip from this star called HD 209458. It's one of the diseases of this particular field of study I've gotten into. I've started memorizing long names of things. But HD 209458, here's a beautiful curve taken from the Hubble Space Telescope. Shows you this beautiful light curve. You see this beautiful dip. The shape of this dip, the duration of this dip, give us a tremendous amount of information about the size of the star, the nature of the star, uh, nature of the star's atmosphere, the size of the planet, from the mass and estimates from radial velocities, I can get the density of the planet. Transiting planets are extremely powerful, as we're going to see tomorrow. It's a slow method. You've got to be careful. You've got to look at the rare occurrences of these transits. But so far, there have been 62 planets discovered by this method. It's the, it's the number two method for finding other planets. Some of these systems have been followed up with radial velocity measurements to actually get accurate measurements of the mass. 
Now to see what you get out of this measurement, watch this cartoon here. There's a Jupiter mass planet crossing and then a little Earth mass planet crossing. I'll repeat here in a couple seconds while I'm talking. Jupiter is about one-tenth the radius of the Sun. When it crosses in front of the Sun, if we're lined up, it will make approximately a 10% squared. It's the ratio of the areas. So it's 10% squared or one one-hundredth of diminution in the light. So this little black circle is only one-tenth the total disk, but it can only block one-tenth squared or one one-hundredth of the light. So I see the star going along, and all of a sudden it goes through a characteristic 1% dip. So finding things like Jupiter's relatively close in to their parent stars that are lined up is relatively straightforward. We can do photometry to 1%. In fact, we can do temp photometry down to a tenth of a percent pretty good. Well, watch this guy here. This is an Earth. The Earth is a little black dot rolling across the animation there. The Earth is one one hundredth the radius of the Sun, and therefore when it blocks out the light, it blocks out one one hundredth squared, or one part in ten thousand of the light, 0.01%. Now we've got to watch a star dip by one part in ten thousand. That's really hard, but we're just now beginning to accomplish it. There's a new space mission on orbit, it just went up last year, called Kepler. It's a dedicated telescope. It's staring at thousands of stars in one part of the sky, and it's beginning to demonstrate photometric accuracy approaching this one part in 10 of the four, one part in 100,000 that you need to detect Earths transiting their stars. So the hunt is on, right? Is it going to be radial velocities that finds an Earth first? Is it going to be the Kepler mission that finds an Earth first? We don't know. But it's a very, very challenging problem. One of the things that you know, comes up in this whole thing with looking at the census of planets, and we'll see more of this when we look at their properties tomorrow, is a lot of big Jupiter gas bags out there. Not a lot of small rocky planets. And the reason is purely a selection effect at this point. It's easier to detect the big stuff. But the small stuff is the stuff we really want. We want the rocky planets in the habitable zones around the stars. We're not there yet, but we're starting to, to get, our, get, get there. And so we're just starting to approach the point that one of these days we're going to see something like that, for example, in Kepler. And we're actually going to detect an Earth around a sun-like or similarly sun-like star. Is it going to be in the right place to be in its habitable zone? I don't know. It's going to take us about five years from now to find out in round numbers. Gravitational microlensing. Oh, that's a terrible picture. Gravitational microlensing occurs when two stars line up on the sky. This is a little bit more abstract. We're here on the Earth. There's a background star, say, in the galactic bulge, and a foreground star here in the galactic disk. Light from the background star would normally go out in all directions, but the gravity of the foreground star bends that light around. It's kind of a crude drawing here, but it shows the basic amount of bending. So that light that normally would have missed the Earth, this is the only the straight line goes directly to the Earth and falls in my telescope, light that would normally have missed the Earth gets bent around and falls in my telescope. The light from the background star gets magnified because I'm using the foreground star as a kind of little gravitational lens held up roughly halfway between me and the other star. Chance of alignment to be sure, but there are billions of stars out there, so even if it's rare, it will happen a few thousand times a year, in fact, towards the galactic bulge. So what I get now is the stars, of course, the way I've drawn this here is the stars are stationary. But stars are not stationary. They're moving, they're orbiting around the center of the galaxy, so if I set this in motion, what's going to happen is, as this star moves relative to the foreground star, the brightness pattern will suddenly get brightest when it's best aligned, 
faintest on either side. So if I watch a whole bunch of background stars, every now and then a foreground star will pass between us and that star on almost a perfect line, and the star will suddenly brighten and then fade out over the course of about 10 days in a very characteristic pattern. Again, when this was first proposed, um, among others, by people shortly after Einstein, people did the statistics and said, no way, we're never going to see this. Then people started thinking about it a little bit more and said, you know, if we watch the galactic bulge or some of these background nearby galaxies, like the large and small Magellanic clouds of the Milky Way, we can watch millions of stars, tens of millions of stars, all at once. If the probability is one in a million per year, that's ten per year. <laughs> all you need is one. So people began to look for lenses. And in fact, in the late, early 1990s, began to discover gravitational microlenses. We now have dedicated studies looking towards our galactic bulge that are turning these things up at a rate of, in the last galactic bulge season, where we're looking at these gigantic fields of these billions of stars in the central galactic bulge of our galaxy, nearly 1,000 lenses were detected between March and October of this year towards the galactic bulge. Future generation surveys will probably push that into many thousands of lenses per year. Why do we care? Well, if it's just a single star, it goes up, it goes down. Boring, you can do some galactic structure stuff with it, but it doesn't help us with planets. But what if that foreground lens has a planet circling it? And the planet's circling it fairly close, or at least reasonably close in the sky. It's a mass. Its mass will act as a little lens, too. So I get a little double lens rolling across. And what I get is the light goes up, comes down, and crosses over the little planet and goes boop for a few hours. Sometimes these combination of magnification patterns can be extremely large. So we're looking for a blip on a blip. Sounds like a crazy idea. When my colleague over across the way, Andy Gould, suggested that this was a viable thing to do and that we should devote a huge amount of instrumentation and other resources to doing it, I kept thinking... Oh, God, what's Andy going to get me into today? Well, what he got me into is being on a team which has so far discovered nine planets through this method, and we actually have another three in the can, or four. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to officially say yet. Uh, we probably picked up another couple planets this last summer. We're finding them at a rate of a couple per summer now towards the galactic bulge by following up these microlensing events found by New Zealand and Polish teams that are doing the surveys for these things. We call our collaboration the Microlensing Follow-Up Network, or Microfun. These things are going to occur over a couple of hours, so I've got to suddenly get telescopes on them any time of day or night. It's a little hard to get a telescope on it during the day, except remember that half the planet's in darkness, 24 hours a day. So we have a network of astronomers in Chile, South Africa, Australia, Tahiti, in fact, all around the Southern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere, unfortunately, is an awful lot of ocean. But we have an awful lot of observers down there. The galactic bulge is high in the sky in the southern hemisphere during the summertime, so it's easy to observe. And it turns out we've been very fortunate because we've managed to recruit a number of extremely talented amateur astronomers who've benefited from digital camera technology and computers who actually now have digital imagers whose quality rivals that of the systems I used to do my dissertation with 20 years ago. We found nine, almost 12 planets using this method. Here's one of these events. It occurred in 2006. It's got the wonderfully mellifluous name of Ogle 2006-109. Okay, Ogle is the name of a Polish collaboration, the Optical Gravitational Lensing Experiment, Ogle as in to stare at. It was the 2006 season, and it was lens number 109 discovered by the group. 
We picked it up around here. You can see this orange point here actually comes from a collaboration called MOA. This is a New Zealand-Japanese collaboration that has a telescope up on Mount St. John's on the South Island. Ogle has got a telescope up on Cerro Las Campanas, which is in, in the Chilean Precordillera. So the black point here is the first couple of points picked up by uh, the Ogle collaboration. MOA got a couple of points. And the first thing that happened is we noticed this sudden little blip here in the uh, black points coming from Ogle, and we went, cool, something's happening here, alerted the network and said, look at it, people, everybody go crazy. I didn't get much sleep during this time, even. The, but my colleagues, Andy Gould and his student at the time, Subo Dong, didn't get much sleep. All of a sudden, the station started coming online. This uh, yellow point here is a, teles a robotic telescope on the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands. These blue points here belong to uh, amateur astronomers in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, further on, we pick up the Cerro Tololo Observatory, which is the observing operation that I actually run for the network remotely through the computers on, down in Chile. Uh, Mount Lemmon Farm Cove Observatory, Jenny McCormick's group out there just outside of Auckland, New Zealand. Um, I don't see, you know, Berto wasn't in on this. We have an amateur astronomer in South Africa who's absolutely phenomenal. And so it went up, and then it went absolutely nuts. <laughs> this isn't one planet, it's two. A Saturn and a Jupiter. But the really cool thing is, these Saturns and Jupiters aren't these little close-in, funky things Maior and Quayos were founding. This is around a half-solar mass star, and they're in the place where they should be if you scale down the solar system to a half-solar mass. This is the very first solar system analog we've ever found. Gas giants out where the gas giants belong, far from the star. This is really cool stuff. It's made possible because we have these extremely talented amateur astronomers working with us. These are four New Zealand astronomers. Uh, Phil and Ian here, without the circles around their head, are professionals. They don't count. This is Grant Christie, who runs the a public observatory in Auckland called the Auckland Observatory, a beautiful place up, on, up in the city of Auckland. And Jenny McCormick, who runs an observatory out of her backyard in Farm Cove, which is out near Pakuranga, outside of Auckland. Um, Jenny is a uh, single mother. She has no college education. She built her own observatory with the help of friends, bought a telescope. We actually bought a telescope for her a couple years ago and got her an advanced camera. She observes every clear night for us. Jenny has been the key observer in at least half or more of our planet discoveries. In recognition of that, she was awarded um, basically one of the highest honors for civilians in New Zealand during the Queen's Birthday Honors a couple years. She was a, a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Um, we could not be doing this experiment without the dedication of people like Jenny and Grant and Berto and all these people who've been doing this. This has been the most fun collaboration I've ever been in, not the least of which is I got to go to New Zealand last year for a meeting. But um, working with them is phenomenal. Their, their excitement and the energy level they bring to us is incredible. And the data they've been taking for us has been absolutely phenomenal. This science would not be possible without this. This is minute-by-minute minute coverage. This is swing the telescope. These are people who have day jobs. They get up out of bed, turn on the telescopes, point at these things, and bam, 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 whack away at it with their instruments and get us this absolutely superb data, which our scientists here, like Scott Gowdy and Andy Gould and our faculty and our students, are able to analyze. We've discovered a number of planets this way. A lot of people have gotten involved in this game. Uh, the one planet I'm kind of happy with, I won't show the data for because it's, it's kind of obscure to, to see, but was a planet was discovered by an undergraduate at Ohio State, uh, Julia Janchek, who was one of my summer undergraduate research students a couple uh, two summers ago, she's now a grad student in physics here. 
Uh, Julia was given one of these light curves. It looked like a sort of a boring light curve. It kind of went up, it went down, no blips. So we said, okay, Julia, you got need something to do because we're getting kind of a slow summer. Why don't you take a really close look at this and use this to set limits on there are no planets up to this mass or in this position. She comes into my office about a week later and says, um, boop, boop, this thing's got a planet in it. Sure enough, there was a very small half a percent blip and a counter blip. Modeled it up, Jupiter mass planet around a star. Absolutely amazing. She did a marvelous senior thesis with me. So what have we found? What's the bottom line? Well, all of these techniques are starting to yield. Uh, many people have worked now for a couple of decades. It's really, the ball's just begun to roll. It's extremely exciting science. Uh, we've gone from knowing absolutely nothing about planets around other stars, but beyond a few, vague hints and vague promises of finding things in 1995 to in November of 2009, the current census as of to this, this morning, I double-checked to make certain something didn't get discovered between last night and this morning, is 405 planets around 343 stars. Most of these are single planets so far. We're, we're sensitive to the most massive thing in the system. Ongoing study may be necessary to find the lower-level effects due to additional planets. People have done that. There's an increasing number of multi-planet systems being found. It requires increasing radio velocity precision. It requires tremendous time basis. So people are really concentrating on us because, you know, we're, we're getting results. So people are really getting excited about this. What's interesting, and we're going to go into this in more detail tomorrow when we pick up this topic, where we're going to talk about that most of these planets turn out to be Jupiter mass planets. We saw that little plot before of the decreasing mass. But the simple fact of the matter is we're mostly finding gas giants so far. We're getting down to a few Neptune mass planets, and we've just started cracking through to what we'll call the super-Earths. We're just starting to get into those mass ranges that you may remember from a, couple, from a little while ago, is around 6 to 10 solar masses is the maximum size you can have for a rocky planet whose atmosphere doesn't get so big that it crushes anything on its surface. So we're starting to get down to the point where we're starting to find things that are getting into the zone of habitable parameters. We're starting to, in fact, find a few planets inside the habitable zones of their stars, as we're going to see. But so far, we have not found habitable Earths, inside, Earths inside of the habitable zone. We're getting there. We're getting really close. You can almost feel it that we're going to get there one of these days. Gravitational microlensing could do it. We're, we're certainly trying. We, we had a little bit of a scare. We thought maybe there was an Earth mass planet blip in one of our events, and eh, it just turned out to be noise. But our techniques are getting to the point we can do this. The radial velocity techniques are starting to sneak up on it. The transit techniques with Kepler and other are sneaking up on it. So we're in a race. We don't know who's going to get there first. It's going to be really contentious and it's tremendously exciting. But we're getting there. We're getting to Earth. The question, the thing that's interesting about this, though, the one thing that's been surprising all along, is so far of the hundreds of systems we've found, only a handful even resemble the solar system. And that's a surprise, perhaps, or maybe not. We don't know. We've never studied any system beyond our own yet. But many of the systems are quite strange. They are indeed very strange new worlds that we found. And in tomorrow's lecture, we're going to now concentrate on the properties of these things and see what we can see about the prospects of ultimately finding a harbor for life around another star. Any questions before we go? Good. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow.